Wasn't that a great selection of worship songs this morning? What a blessing. As you well know, Bill Sullivan's father passed away just a few days ago. Bill was scheduled to preach today. And when he called me and said, Jim, my dad died just about 10 minutes ago, it became apparent Bill should not be in the pulpit today. And so immediately it seemed that I should be the one to be before you and bring the word of God this morning. And so I began to seek the Lord. You know, what, uh, what should I say? And so I began to think, well, really, should I bring a word this morning that really helps people in the things they're pursuing in life? And if so, what should that pursuit be? Now, you know, people do pursue things. It's obvious that they're doing it deliberately. For instance, when you see young men walking through the mall with their pants about to fall off, you know that's by design. It's not by accident. When you see someone walking along with their ball cap with the bill turned backwards, that's not just casually there. You know they look in the mirror. That's, that's by design. What does it seem that humanity as a whole is deliberately pursuing. As I thought about it, it became apparent to me that mankind as a whole is pursuing misery. Because if you spend much time around anybody, sooner or later they start complaining. That's one of the problems I have. I'm not very good at just socializing because I don't know what to say. And if I spend very much time, people start griping, the weather, the preacher, whatever. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I could serve humanity today if I brought a sermon on the topic of the secret of being miserable. <laughs> and I could fill it with illustrations. For instance, I thought about marriage. If in a marriage a husband feels that his wife exists to meet his every need, and her role is to make him happy, and he's entitled to that, and he keeps score every time she fails. That man will discovered, have discovered the secret of wonderful misery. And on the other hand, if the wife thinks her husband exists just to meet her every need, and the same thing is true, and she keeps score, she too will have discovered the secret of achieving Wonderful misery. Ah, and if both husband and wife have that attitude, they'll achieve exquisite misery. <laughs> I thought I could illustrate this sermon by a fellow who comes to church. He's a church member. And he shows up Sunday morning expecting his every need to be met. His birthday was last week. And so he notices who didn't wish him happy birthday. He notices everyone who didn't compliment him. And by the way, he didn't like the songs the worship team used. And the preacher preached a lousy sermon, and he marks it all down. And he's miserable all week. He succeeded in achieving misery. Not only that, after a while, he'll go to another church and succeed there. And another church and succeed there. <laughs> 
he has discovered the secret of being miserable, which is living for oneself. But a thought, that really is kind of a negative sermon, isn't it? Now, it would be successful, because by the time I would have finished that negative sermon, everybody in the building would be miserable. I would have achieved success. But that really didn't seem to be the will of God. <laughs> because really our purpose should be to encourage and to exhort one another. Scripture speaks of that so often, doesn't it? Hebrews 10:25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. The Hebrews 3:13, encourage one another day after day. First Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you are also doing. And so this morning, my purpose is to encourage you in Jesus Christ. So as I prayed, well, Lord, what do I talk about Sunday? I just sense God say to me, Jim, next Sunday, talk about what's on your heart. And that was easy. Because for many, many days, over and over, this phrase has been going through my mind. I thank my God of every remembrance of you. You're precious to me. And we're precious to one another. That's my heart. I thank God for every remembrance of you. And so this morning on this first Sunday of the new year, I want to bring a word of thanksgiving, a word of thanksgiving for the wonderful blessing that he has given us in this church and in one another. The entire paragraph, Philippians 1, 3 to 11, expresses my heart this morning. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day till now, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. It is only right for me to feel this way about you, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. I thank my God Whatever good thing any of us has within us as individuals, 
whatever good thing we have in this congregation, we owe to God. John the Baptist said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. And Paul wrote to the Romans in 12.3, through the grace given to me, he had that grace given so he could say it, I say to everyone among you, do not think of himself more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each the measure of faith. It is very important that as we bask in the blessings that God has given us as a church, that we avoid the temptation of self-exaltation and also that we must not deny that every gift, every ability, every deposit of love that we have in this church has come from God. He is the giver. We're the recipient of the gifts. We must never become like that Pharisee of which Jesus spoke, recorded in Luke 18, who praying said, you know, I, I, Father, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like this tax collector. I'm not uh, like those who are swindlers and unjust and so on. I'm not like that tax collector over there. I tithe fast. I do it all. And the tax collector said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That must be our heart always as a church and as individuals. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, In me there dwelleth no good thing. So my brother and my sister, if there's anything good in me, if there's anything good in you as an individual, if there's anything good in us as a church, it is not because a bunch of wonderful people came together and have an exemplary congregation. It is because the Lord took a group of motley folks and decided to make them this body of Christ. I think of what he wrote to the Corinthians. Do you not know the unrighteous was? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. <laughs> but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Now think about that. We know each other pretty well here. Some of us in this church are former drug dealers. Some of us in this church are former drug users. Some of us in this church are former drunks. Some of us in this church are former know-it-alls whom God in His grace embarrassed and, and just exposed the folly of our self-importance. Some of us are former self-righteous legalists and one day God stuck a mirror in front of us and say, look at who you really are. And by his grace and goodness brought us to the reality of his, his love. Some of us are former liars. Hope nobody still is. <laughs> Some of us are former adulterers and adulteresses. Some of us have been respectable sinners, respectable sinners, whose eyes God opened to the reality of our sinful pride shamed us into repentance. We're a motley crew, aren't we? 
And yet, praise be to God, one by one, he has plucked us from who we were and made us who we are. And it's all his grace and it's all his goodness. And he's made us a loving body, a motley crew in which his glory dwells. Praise his name. He has done it. You know, on and on we could go with that list, couldn't I? Describing who we are. I didn't mention some of you. But in his mercy, has brought us together and made us a spiritual family. As Paul said to the Philippians, I thank God every time I think of you. I thank God that he has allowed me to be a part of this wonderful family. Praise his name. Paul said he thanked the Philippians because of their participation with him and the work of the gospel. Now, I know the elders probably get tired of hearing me say this, and I don't plan to say it. It just comes out of my mouth. We're in this thing together. <laughs> We're in this thing together, and, and we are. To the elders, I say, I thank my God of every remembrance of you. Now, for many years, I was in churches in which I was the minister. <laughs> and in that role, you pretty well walk alone, just you and God. There's usually a board of elders, some of whom view their primary responsibility before God is to criticize the preacher. And you just learn to live with that. But when I think of what we have here, and I go around the circle in my mind, Bruce and Gordon and Jim Grinnell and Dave and Joel Vazanen and Bill, my heart is warmed. I rejoice when I thank God for these wonderful men of which he has allowed me to be a part. What a secure feeling. We're in this thing together. But that's not only true of the elders, is it? That's true of all of us. We're in this thing together. What is this thing that we're in together? Well, at Tulsa Christian Fellowship, the dominant thing we're in together is the distant fields of harvest. As a church, we don't really feel to the city call to the city of Tulsa. Our primary call is those distant fields of harvest. And what a joy to have that unity that we don't dispute that, we don't argue about it, but the Holy Spirit has so planted that in our hearts. What a joy to have missions moment every Sunday in which each Sunday we pray for a different nation where we have missionaries and we pray for that missionary. And they're not just names. They used to sit here among us, and every missionary that we have is one who is a, and has been, a church member. What a blessing that we are united together, participating together in reaching those distant fields of harvest. But our church building is here, <laughs> and we feel that wonderful responsibility for the neighborhood. I don't know a church anywhere that has access to a public school like this one does. 
It's amazing, isn't it? Thank God we've had two godly Christian principles, one and then another, and they have opened the door to those who believe in Jesus to come into their school. I thank God that years ago he gave the vision to Charlene Dunn to go learn some things about child evangelism and Kids Hope USA, and so we could begin that tutoring program, and then the Friday afternoon Bible club. Do you know any church, any public school anywhere that has a Bible club on Friday afternoon with a, over 160 kids in it? Unbelievable. I thank God for the marvelous creativity he's given to Patty Elan, who is our children's director. There's not a puppet team in the world, I don't think that can rival the one that we have here. But pride, no, thank God for what he has done. And I see on Thursday afternoons often Charlene and Patty, uh, Don and Jody meeting to pray for the children and the children's ministry. I thank my God when I remember that, that we have such dedicated people. You know, at TCF, we're not interested in big and ornate buildings. We're not interested in making a name for ourselves. We're not interested in getting numbers just for numbers' sake. If we did that, we would relocate to South Tulsa somewhere. We're not interested in bigger offerings so church leaders can be paid big salaries and live opulent lives. What we cry out for, of course, is more hands to come and help us grasp the plow. God has called us to do things far bigger than we can do. And we keep reaching a limit of, of, of workers and assets. And so our prayer is not just to build the institution, but, oh, God, bring more to put their hand to the plow, that we can, in a greater way, do that which you have called us to do. Oh, what a blessing to be a part of a body that God has given such a clear call that we understand it and we are united in it. I thank my God of every remembrance of you. I thank God that we're in this thing financially. That's what Paul spoke to the Philippian church today marks the 59th anniversary of my being a minister of the gospel of Christ. On January 1st, 1953, I became the minister of a rural congregation in Ohio. Now, the reason I say that is that in those 59 years, I've been involved with a lot of different kinds of churches, big and small, many geographical places, not only in America, but in the world, as I traveled with Gordon for a while. I've been involved with churches that have various demographic groups, some farmers, sometimes businessmen, some congregations, largely professionals, some churches that are largely people in the crafts and trades. I, in all of these 59 years, have never, ever seen a church that has the per capita giving ratio that this church has. It's amazing. And yet here's also something amazing. We never talk about money, do we? <laughs> we don't have pledges. We don't have financial campaigns in which we have a 
a big thermometer until we get enough pledges to burst the bubble. I've been in places like that. We don't hire professional groups to come in and tell us how to get people to give more on the theory that where your money is, there will your heart be also, so if we can get everybody's money, we'll have their hearts. I've been in places like that too. You know, about the only time we ever mention money is in the annual missions conference, and there just information is given, and you're asked to pray about what you do with missions. It's amazing to to see a church where people tithe for the operation of the local body and then above that give offerings for missions, which sometimes is 30% of the amount of giving. Wow, I thank God for every remembrance of you. And it's because of something that he has done in the hearts of the people. I can't explain the amazing financial stewardship. And let me, as an aside, say the financial stewardship of the leaders of this church. I want to tell you, if the United States government had the elders of TCF running the United States, we'd have a balanced budget. <laughs> uh, may it be. <laughs> and... Nothing is hidden. Anybody who ever wants to look at the books of this church, they're open to you. The only thing that will not be known and is known to no one but one person, and that's what anybody gives. There's only one person in this church who knows what anybody gives, and that is the church recorder who records that. And the only reason that is done is because people want receipts for the IRS. If the IRS would fly a kite, that, that would be gone too. Unfortunately, the IRS isn't going to fly a kite, so, <laughs> so that will continue. But, but it's astounding. I, my heart is warmed as I think of the sacrifice that I know must be taking place in the lives of the members of this church to make the financial things we do possible. We're in this thing together in that we share one another's burdens. Paul wrote to the Galatians, bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another, not haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So what happens to you happens to me. What happens to me happens to you. Now, some of you know that for some time I've been helping Jim and Diana create a bedroom in their attic for the boys. Now, I'm an amateur, and I'm sure if I were a professional like Paul Bergard or <laughs> I can think of so, so many perhaps in this church that are professionals, But uh, I get splinters. I guess professionals don't. <laughs> Tom, do you get splinters? Okay. <laughs> well, now, I've got splinters in this finger. I have splinters in this finger. Uh, I reached into my work bucket and jabbed my thumb on a paddle bit. <laughs> that didn't feel good. Then I got a splinter right where I... 
heard it. Now, I can't look at that and say, that thumb hurts, <laughs> that finger hurts. By the way, here's an interesting, funny aside. <laughs> you know, when my grief over my wife's death, although it's been three and a half years ago, still is very strong, sometimes it gets more than I can bear. Barb loved the flowers. She was a master gardener certified by OSU, answered the telephone sometimes, uh, worked in the rose garden. And so I'll take my clarinet and I'll go to Woodward Park and sit within side of the rose garden and play mournful songs, just expressing my grief. Friday was one of those days. But because I have splinters in my fingers, <laughs> Some of the strangest sounds came out of that clarinet. <laughs> they would flinch. <laughs> but I can't say, oh, uh, that finger hurts. It's my finger hurts. <laughs> my thumb hurts. This splinter is in my hand. <laughs> and it is that way with you. We are not like mechanics who putting a fuel pump in a vehicle, pulls the gas tank and goes to lunch and forgets about it and then comes back and takes up where he left off. But we're a church that continually bears the burdens of one another. I was on the phone with uh, Betsy Griffin Friday morning, I think it was, I believe it was, and she said, you know, Carl and Doris have just been over, and our whole family, we sat around and visited together. By the way, Jody's coming up the walk. We have to stop our phone conversation. <laughs> I thought, oh, Lord, how wonderful to see a church in which, without being bidden or prodded, by the way, last week the McWilliams also were over visiting uh, that home, without being prodded, or any kind of a schedule laid out, now this week you visit, this week. That's what this church does. You look after one another. Somebody's in the hospital, I'm sure sometimes they get tired of the visitors <laughs> because you are so wonderful in the way you minister to one another. We bear one another's burdens, my brother, my sister, we're in this thing together. My heart is warm every time I think of you. But let me give a word of warning. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, that we should beware that no advantage be taken of us by Satan and he says, because we are not ignorant of his schemes. And notice the word is plural, schemes, and he has many. When you read what's behind that statement, you can almost see an illustration or a parallel story of C.S. Lewis's famous book, The Screwtape Letters, in which the devil advised Wormwood do this, and he said that Christians do that, great, now we can do this, all his games. 
here's the background. Paul had written a letter to the church at Corinth describing how they should live as a church. That letter is lost. We don't have it. And in it he had said that if there is anyone in the church who is openly living in sin and will not repent, then you must disfellowship them. They ignored that. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we read that there was a man in the church who Paul said had his mother's, or rather had his father's wife. Now, we wonder what, what did he mean? Was the man having sexual relationships with his biological mother? Was he having a sexual relationship with his stepmother who his father had married as his father died? Was he having sexual relationships with his father's widow who was not his biological mother? We don't know, but it's almost too filthy even to think about, isn't it? But that was going on. The church wasn't doing anything about it. Paul said, you're boasting. Now, we don't know exactly what that meant either. The intimation is, first of all, they were boasting. Paul had said, do this, and they had said, you're not going to tell us what to do. And that's the, that seems to be what, part of what he says, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where he addresses that, he said, I gave you this command to test you to see if you'd obey me. Would you obey apostolic authority? But their boasting also seems to have been the grace of God is so wonderful. <laughs> We're not going to judge anybody. Jesus said don't judge, you know. Live and let live. So there was somewhat a bit of pride in them. Paul addressed that in Romans 6.1 talked about the grace of God. Shall we sin more that grace may abound? Meganoito, he says in the Greek. God forbid, let it not be. <laughs> but that's what was going on in Corinth. And so Paul said, Ex uh, excommunicate the man. Not execute him, <laughs> excommunicate the man. <laughs> turn him over to Satan that maybe his spirit can be saved. And he said, don't even eat with him. Shun him. He did it. Man repented. Wanted to come back into the body. <laughs> We're not having any of your kind. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul had to scold them on the other side. <laughs> you know, surgery is not designed to kill a person. It's designed to make them well. <laughs> and the same thing is true of spiritual surgery. And so he said, receive the man back. Don't allow Satan to make you a self-righteous church that can't remember that some of you were fornicators and idolaters and you've been made over by God. This man has been made over by God. Receive him back. Don't allow Satan to destroy that man. Nor do not allow Satan to make you self-righteous prigs. Satan and his schemes. My, he has so many. So Paul's command was threefold. The exec, uh, excommunicate the man. First of all, to clean the church of sin. He said, get rid of the leaven. 
Secondly, to bring the man to repentance. Third, to see if they would obey apostolic authority. When Satan began manifesting his schemes, Paul said, don't let him do it. My brother, my sister, Satan wants to destroy every person in this world who is bearing the glorious light of Jesus Christ. And if he can, he would physically kill every Christian to get us out of this world. Sad to say, in many parts of the world, he is successfully doing that. Snuffing out every light in those countries he can by killing Christians. But when he can't do it, then his scheme come in to play. And there is no scheme of his that is more successful than division, dividing those who name the name of Jesus. I've told you before, but I'll tell it again because it fits so well here. Many, many years ago, I'd been involved in church camp busily all week long and the custom was you preach Sunday morning, you haul kids to church camp, come back, preach Sunday night, then go back and spend the week with 120 kids 24 hours a day. You think that's heaven on earth, you're mistaken. <laughs> but I was driving back Sunday night to preach, and I'd been so busy, I hadn't had time to prepare a sermon. I was crying out, oh God, oh God, oh God, what do I preach? What do I talk about tonight? And as I was praying that into the car, wafted the odor of a skunk a skunk. And the Lord said to me, preach about that tonight. You can't mistake the odor of a skunk. Neither can you mistake the odor of Satan. Every time Satan walks through a situation, he leaves his odor behind, and that odor is division. And any time you see division between believers, Someplace, somewhere in that setting, Satan is there. Division is his odor. So I thought I'd preach that night. <laughs> that stayed with me for years. And it's true, isn't it? Anytime we believers are separated, some way Satan has gotten into the situation. That's his odor. And he divides so many ways. One way he causes division is through aberrant teaching. Remember in Acts chapter 20, as Paul was exhorting the Ephesian elders, he said, be on guard for yourselves and all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, shepherd the church of God, and so on. And then he said, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock from your own selves. Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. In other words, he was saying, I'm predicting that after I leave, men will come forth with false doctrines and they will gather disciples unto themselves and they will divide the body of Christ. And so in this paragraph that we read early on, Paul 
said this, I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. The elders of this church will stand judged before God if they allow aberrant teaching to take place in this congregation and draw people away into false doctrines and begin to cause division in the body. But you know how wonderful it is, is as each of us grows and matures in Christ, that what Paul prayed for the Philippians becomes true of us, that we will grow in real knowledge and we will grow in discernment and we won't need elders to say that's wrong, we'll know it's wrong because the Holy Spirit has brought that discernment to us. Many years ago, I was in a meeting in which there were a number of TCF folk. And there was a man who was a great communicator presenting what was some of the most blasphemous teaching I've ever heard in my whole life, the relationship between God and believers. And I saw people just eating it up. And at the break, I drew the TCF folk aside and I said, brothers and sisters, this is blasphemy. And in sarcasm, one said to me, oh, we're so glad you're here to tell us. My grief over the false teaching was not as great as my grief over the inability of TCF members to discern the heart of what this man was saying about God. In Ephesians chapter 4, you notice that the role of church leadership there is to equip saints for the work of the service, that we grow in maturity in Christ, until it says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love were to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even in Christ. Notice the speaking the truth in love there it's talking about his doctrine. How wonderful when I think about you. I really sense that we are a church that not just the elders, but this present body has the ability to discern truth and error and to know when you're hearing truth and to know when you're hearing error and not to swallow the sweet poison that gifted communicators often present. We face a new year. And if you listen to the pundits, there are many dire predictions being made about what's ahead for 2012. Even as you listen to some talk about what's ahead for Christians in 2012, it sounds kind of bleak. But this I know, come what may, we will walk together, won't we? We're in this thing together. With God's approval today, I want you to know I've spoken what's on my heart. I thank my God in my every remembrance of you, 
always offering prayer with joy in all of my prayers for you. Father, we acknowledge the great gift you have given us in each other. And we see that as a gift from you, not something we have done. Thank you for your goodness. Through Jesus, amen.